Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I think it'll actually be 1 through 3. Um, But let's read the text and let's ask the Lord for His help this morning as He leads us in His Word. Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Amen. Father, we again would ask for your grace and your help this morning to understand your word and to be changed by your word, to love your word above all things, to delight in your word. Father, thank you for the new heart that you've given to your people to respond to the word of truth. Lord, May all of us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week we turned the corner, so to speak, into Romans chapter 8 and just began to look at um, uh, the wonderful truth and comfort of all of God's people in all time. The comfort of no condemnation. That we are no longer pronounced guilty in the courtroom of God for our sin, which we deserve. Rather, we have been declared righteous, justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. This is a chapter of comfort for God's people that we are to come to time and time again. This really is the Holy Spirit's chapter, if you want to think about it that way. It's where Paul turns our attention to the Spirit of God and His work of applying the work of redemption that Christ accomplished, that God accomplished in Christ to us, to His people. We looked at three points last week. We looked at the nature of the comfort, the recipients of the comfort, and the character of the comforted. And we saw that the nature of the comfort is what I just said, no condemnation. That is another way of saying we are justified. Justification and no condemnation are the same thing. And what a tremendous comfort this really is for God's people who know something of their sin and of the greatest problem that all of us and all humanity has. There is one problem that we all have that excels all others, and it is this. We are under the wrath of God for our sin and for our sinfulness. That was Paul's opening point in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, hold down the truth in unrighteousness that is in themselves, because what may be known of God 
is manifest in them. It's shown to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed Himself to every person on this planet. There is no such thing as an atheist. The problem is, although they knew God, in verse 21, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Rather, they became futile, empty, vain in their hearts and in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They preferred, we preferred, the lie to the truth. We exchanged the glory of the Almighty, blessed God for the creature. We've offended the holy God. And because of that, God has turned all of us over to a debased mind, a mind that doesn't function spiritually. He has abandoned us judicially to our own sinfulness to be consumed and ravaged by the sin of our own hearts. And you see the list of that in Romans 1, 29 through the end. Indulging in every kind of wickedness, including disobedience to parents, and not only knowing that what they are doing is wrong, but delighting in others who practice the same thing. It's nothing short of defiance against God. And everyone is in this condition. We all were condemned. He takes time to discuss the Gentiles, the nations of the world being under his condemnation. He then moves to the Jews, the people of God, the ethnic Jews, and uh, their condemnation is exactly the same because they are practicing the very things that they condemn others for. And so all of us have been consigned to the wrath of God and condemnation. That's why this is such comforting news, that there's no longer condemnation for us in Christ. That condemnation has passed and will never come up again. He will never bring charges against us in the courtroom of God for sins that we have committed or even have yet to commit in the future. Tremendous blessing and comfort, not to be thought of lightly or despised in any way. And so the nature of the comfort is no condemnation. The recipients of those comforts are those who are in Christ Jesus. And we saw that that meant those who are united to Christ, who have been grafted into Christ as a vine is grafted into the branches, permanently joined to Him by the sovereign work of the Spirit of the living God. And then the character of the comforted is seen in the back half of verse 1, which is not in certain translations. That back half of verse 1 is appended to the back end of, of chapter 8, verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, your walk of life, your pattern and practice of life in general, your new trajectory, or your trajectory, whether it's new or old, determines whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. It evidences, I should say, whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. Those who are in Christ, who are true recipients of this great blessing of no condemnation, are those who practice holiness. They're not perfect. 
We are not perfect, but we practice righteousness. We love righteousness and we hate our sin. This week, I want to transition to verse 2 and 3, really. And I want to give you three more points for today as we continue to unpack this idea of no condemnation and the great comfort of God's people. Um, We're going to look at three points. The first is the cause of our comfort. The cause of our comfort, we'll see that in verse 2. The second is the limitation of the law, the limitation of the law. And the third is the love of God to the condemned. So let's look first at the cause of our comfort. Why is it that we can say and that Paul can say that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Why is there no condemnation? Here is the answer, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, we need to unpack this, but any time, as, as we've seen many times going through chapter 7, whenever Paul starts with the word for in a sentence, he is going to explain what previously came, what immediately came before it. So, here's the reason we're not condemned anymore. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop there for a moment and let's take that apart because these phrases are important and they're filled with theology. We need to understand if we are to grow in this grace. What is the law of the Spirit of life? Or what does Paul even mean by the law? He's been talking a lot about the law as we saw in chapter 7. Well, if you look back at chapter 7, um, verse 21, he talks about a law. He's not talking about the law of God. He says, I find that a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And we saw when we went through that portion of Scripture that the law he's referring to is a rule. It's a principle. It's something which governs. You could call it a governing power. And so what he's saying in verse 21 is, I find this governing power or principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. He calls that law of evil the law of sin in verse 23. And he says that that law is something that's present with him. It's always with him. It's in his flesh, generally speaking. We saw in verse 18 of chapter 7. And it's in his members specifically, the components of his physical and non-physical body, including his mind and his affections and his will. This law of sin or governing power is in his flesh, and that's why he started the section from 13 to 25 or 14 to 25 by saying that in contrast to the law which is spiritual, he is carnal, sold under sin because of this law, this principle of indwelling sin that abides with him and will always be with him because of his first birth from Adam. And he describes how this principle of sin works in chapter 7, verse 5, when he says, For when we were in the flesh, that's past tense, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. This law of sin aroused sin in his members, and it used the good, holy, just law of God to do so. It's like the law came and said, do not 
disobey God. Don't transgress his law. And that just made us, when we were in the flesh, unsaved, want to disobey even more. It stirred up those sinful passions in us. That's that principle of sin, that principle of evil that is with all people because of our first birth in Adam. But then we saw in chapter 7, verse 9, that Paul began, Paul woke up. He says, I was alive once without the law. He thought he was living. He thought he was spiritually alive and spiritually vital. But he says, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment, the law of God came to him in great power. And it confronted him with his own sinfulness And he no longer felt spiritually alive. He knew that he was spiritually dead. He was convicted because of his sin. And then, as we read in the next section, his desires changed. The desires he had previously to uh, just covet all the time, that went away. He now has desires for holiness, for obeying the law of God, for loving the law of God and delighting in it, as he says in verse 22 of chapter 7. So he becomes aware that there is now a war within himself. Previously, he was at peace with himself, given over to his sin, but now he is at war with himself, and he defines that in verse 23 of chapter 7. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." This law of sin from his first birth in Adam is now at war with this law of his new mind, which is in Christ, a result of his new birth, his second birth in Christ. He has these two identities within himself that he recognizes, and he says, I'm not that old man anymore. I'm not the flesh anymore. That used to be my identity. Now I'm new in Christ. I have his mind, and I see my condition for what it is. It's like this, a body of sin that's strapped to me, a decaying stinking body of death that I'm dragging with me everywhere I go and I can't get rid of it. And he's frustrated because he wants to obey not just some of God's law, but all of his law all the time. That's the desire of his new heart. So when Paul uses this word law, he is meaning a ruling principle, a governing power. And that's what Paul carries forward now into chapter 8 when he is using this phrase, the law, as applied to the spirit of life. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ. Now, the spirit here is referring to the Holy Spirit. And this is not the first time we've been introduced to the Holy Spirit in Romans. Paul is reintroducing us here, but he's mentioned the Holy Spirit four times so far in the first seven chapters. He mentions him in chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 5, verse 5, and chapter 7, verse 6. But here in chapter 8, he mentions the Holy Spirit 18 times. 18 times. That's why this is the Holy Spirit's chapter. And for the remaining eight chapters of Romans, 8 through 16 or 9 through 16, he mentions the Spirit 11 more times, the Holy Spirit. So a total of 29 times in the book of Romans He wants us to know something about the Holy Spirit and His work. The Spirit is the Spirit of life. In what sense? Well, 
Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of life in two senses. He is the Holy Spirit of all of life. He is the source of all life. Scripture teaches that the Spirit is fully God, the third person of the Trinity. He is co-equal with God, the same in every respect. He is co-substantial of the same substance or essence as God, and He's co-eternal with God. He's always existed in the Godhead with the Father and the Son. Jesus ascribes deity to the Holy Spirit in His Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 when He tells His disciples shortly before ascending to heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So He ascribes the place of the Spirit together with Father and Son. And what's so interesting is He says in the name of, in the singular, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One singular name, three components. Triune God, three in one. The Spirit is co-equal with God. Jesus also ascribes deity to the Holy Spirit by telling us that He proceeds from God Himself. That His origin, His source is God Himself. Listen to John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus speaking, He says, When the Helper comes, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit who will be poured out at Pentecost, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. He is from the Father. The preposition that Paul uses, um, excuse me, that Jesus uses there in the Greek is para, para. Para as in parallel, something that is right beside something else. This helper, this Spirit of God is alongside the Father in His position. And He proceeds from the Father. He proceeds. That's That is to say, He goes forth from the Father. He issues forth from the Father. He emanates from beside the Father. In other words, His origin is in God and is God Himself. There was a great controversy in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea, and this point was one of the points that was in dispute. Can we say that the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the Father in terms of His eternal relationship with God. Is that what's being described, for example, in John 15, 26? Or is it a reference to the fact that the Spirit will be poured out by the Lord Jesus Christ at Pentecost, and He will proceed from the Father in space and time and come into this world only? Is that the idea of the proceeding? And they weren't sure. They they actually had two councils to determine this. And this was actually one of the points that split the church from east and west in 1054. This was decided in 381 at Constantinople, and I believe is true to Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is always proceeding from the Father. That is His position with the Father and the Son. He always issues forth. He always streams from the Father. What's so interesting about the word for proceed that Jesus uses is it's also used to refer to a river that flows. A river that flows. So, 
It is the case that he is always proceeding and flowing out of the Father, just like the glorious river that we sang of this morning. There's a a wonderful um, but brief illustration of this that I saw and wanted to share as I was preparing this week. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 takes place after the present earth and heavens are burned up, they're done away with. There is a new heaven and a new earth that come down from heaven. And John is given, the Apostle John is given a vision of this new Jerusalem and the river of life in chapter 22. And just listen or look with me at uh, this first verse of Revelation 22. John speaking, he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. What is this river of water of life that we're seeing here? In the middle of its street, verse 2, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of God. This throne of God and of the Lamb, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, and the water that proceeds from the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. He proceeds as the water of life, and He waters this tree of life, which is a picture of God's, God Himself with His people grafted together, bearing fruit forever all watered by this wonderful Spirit of God who issues forth from God. And there's a a similar example I won't go to right now, but if you just want to note it, to take a look at Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple, really, I believe, a spiritual temple of God. And there's a description of water that flows from underneath the threshold of the temple from the, the place of God's dwelling underneath and out to the east that expands and gets deeper and deeper as the river proceeds away from the throne of God, a picture of the growing kingdom of God all by the power of His Spirit. So this Holy Spirit is the source of life, the source of all life. He is also the life giver, the life giver. We see this in creation, even going back to Genesis chapter 1 and looking at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, or the waters. The word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. It means wind. It means breath. And so what we have here is the Spirit of God who is hovering over the face of these waters, and He begins to speak. His breath goes out as a wind, and He says, let there be light. And there was light. And He says, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, dividing waters from waters, and it was so. And so on and so forth for the six days of creation. The Spirit of God breathing out life through His spoken word. He brings order. 
He brings life to the chaos and to the darkness. In Genesis chapter 2, when man is created, in verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's the Spirit of God breathing into the dust and forming life. Spirit issuing forth new spirit. In Psalm 104, verse 30, the psalmist says, You send forth your spirit speaking to the Lord. They are created. And you renew the face of the earth. When he sends forth his breath, all kinds of life is created in the earth, throughout the earth, in the heavens above the earth, in the earth itself, and under the earth, in the oceans, in the rivers. God's Spirit is the life giver. And conversely, when God gathers his breath back to himself, guess what happens? Death. Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, if he, the Lord, should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. So there is a directionality to the spirit, a flowing that issues forth from God going out and creating life wherever he wills. And that flowing must be sustained in order for life to be sustained. The moment he withdraws his sustaining flow of life, life ends. So he is the creator, the life giver, certainly in creation, but also and especially in recreation, in spiritual life giving. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3. John 3, our Lord Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, uh, who is ruler of the Jews. He is called the teacher of Israel. And Jesus um, speaks to him about how one can access the kingdom of God, how, how one can see the kingdom of God and get into it. Listen to this account here from the Apostle John. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? This is incredible. The Lord is teaching us that everyone who is born again, who is born from above, who has been regenerated, has been regenerated by the Spirit of God in a way that is likened to the wind blowing. 
no one understands the path of the wind. You cannot say which direction the wind is coming from and which direction the wind is going to and how fast it will get there with any kind of accuracy. It blows where it wills, and so it is with the Spirit of God when He blows on the hearts of His people and brings life where there was chaos and darkness, just as in the created order. He is the Spirit of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the people in the synagogue at Capernaum. He had just fed the 5,000, and He had many people following Him because they were being fed. And Jesus tells them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And the people were choking on His words. And He said, does this offend you? Well, of course it offended them because they didn't have spiritual life. The words that they heard from the Lord Jesus sounded to their fleshly ears like cannibalism, eating His flesh and drinking His blood. But Jesus says in John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Remember that. These words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So the Spirit is life. He issues forth new life as He blows like the wind. And the very words of Christ are the very words of the Spirit of life, giving life and sustaining life. The Spirit is the Spirit of life. Let's come back to Romans 8 now. So Paul says, for the law or the governing principle, the governing power, if you will, of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the next phrase we have to look at. That now speaks to the Spirit's location. Not in space and time where He dwells physically, but in essence and in existence. Where is it that the Spirit is found? He's found in Christ. They are united together. They share the same mind. They share the same attributes. They share the same experiences. They share the same life. The Spirit of life is in Christ, Jesus. The Spirit of God, in other words, is only and always the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ because He is in union with Christ. That's very important to remember. And it helps us to understand this next phrase as we begin to unpack it. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, has made me free, Paul says, from the law of sin and death. Okay, well, what is the law of sin and death? If you're like me, I'm always asking questions of the text until it's clear. What is the law of sin and death? Well, some say that Paul's referring to the law of God because it brings sin and death as a result, albeit indirectly. It's good and spiritual, holy, in and of itself, the law. But remember, our sinful passions stir up more sin using the law, leveraging what is good to produce more sin and death. So indirectly, it could be seen as bringing sin and death, the law of sin and death. But others say that Paul is still carrying forward the same phrase he used in Romans 7.23 where he talks about the law of sin. 
which results in having a body of death. And I really think that that's primarily what he's talking about here. He's referring to that governing power of sin that rules where? In our flesh. In our flesh. It's the rule of the flesh that we inherited from Adam. So Paul is saying the governing power of the Spirit has freed us from that governing power of sin and death which dwells in us, in our flesh. And Paul says, he has made me free. The Spirit of life has made me free. It's a word that refers to one who sets another free from slavery. That tells us something about the Spirit of life. He is not just a force. He is a person. He sets people free. It's very interesting that in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said, Therefore, if the Son, referring to himself, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. How can the Son set us free? And yet Paul says it's the Spirit of life that sets us free. Because the Spirit of life is in Christ Jesus. They're united. They're one. The next question we have to ask is, how does the Spirit of life free us from the law of sin and death? What is it that He does to free us from this principle, this governing principle of sin and death that rules in our members, in our flesh? Well, in very simple terms, I think it's this. Remember, He's the Spirit of life. So He, as the Spirit of life, frees us from the rule of sin and death by transferring us to the kingdom of life or the rule of life. He brings us from death to life, very simply. That's how he frees us. And I think that's exactly what Paul was getting at back in Romans 6, verse 14, when we looked at this concluding comment. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You're no longer under the power and the dominion of law as that which condemns you, You're under grace. You're under the principle, the governing principle of grace now, and that grace is the spirit of grace. He is the controlling principle that is in you that is governing your life, the real you, not your flesh. That's not the real you. The new mind, the new person that has been born from above that is dwelling with this body of death. That's where he's made us free. He's bringing us to life. He is bringing us into the new covenant. He's given us a new master and a new husband, all in the language of Romans chapter 7 and and 6. Paul is here explaining to us how it is that we were set free when he just made that declarative statement in Romans chapter 6. Like verse 18 of Romans 6, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul, how did that happen? The Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made you free from the law of sin and death. That's how it happened. The Spirit of God moved on you and He brought you to life. He freed you from the power of death. Now, when the Spirit of life makes us free from this principle of sin and death, it does not mean the principle of sin and death goes away. That's an important point. The principle still remains in our flesh 
That's why Paul is so frustrated in Romans 7, saying, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this wretched corpse that hangs from me? But the good news is we've died to sin. We're no longer under its control, under its domain anymore. We no longer have to obey its voice when it calls out to us and says, open the door. You don't have to do that anymore because you have been set free from the principle that previously governed you by a new principle that now governs you, the spirit of life. I want to illustrate this for you um, back in John chapter 15. So let's go there together. Just look at this for a moment. John 15. And verse 26 again. Sometimes it's helpful just to get our eyes on the text. This um, discourse, Jesus is speaking from the upper room the night before he goes to the cross. And he is um, preparing his disciples for what is going to happen for his death, for their um, hatred and rejection by the world because the world first hated him. And he is giving them some measure of comfort that though he is going away, he is going to send another in his place to comfort them. He says in verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The word for helper there, as I mentioned before, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The, the word in Greek is actually parakletos. It's the word for paraclete, which you may have heard and that word is two words. It's para, again, which means the preposition alongside, and kletos is to call. So the one who is called alongside in order to give aid, in order to give comfort and help of various kinds. We saw that he is from the Father. He is alongside the Father in his um, origination, and he proceeds from the Father. He comes alongside as he's called to help his people. This stream of life that we've been talking about, he comes to his people. He, like a wind, directs himself to his people, and he comes alongside us to help us. Now, a lot of times we read this in the context of um, the apostles, that they will be um, helped by the Spirit because they're going to write the New Testament and they're going to need the Spirit to bring to mind everything that Jesus has said that they won't be able to call to mind without His help. Um, we also think of this verse as uh, helps for us in the Christian life that the, the Spirit of truth is teaching us truth and He's comforting us and, and helping us in many ways and that's all true. But what about just as a starting point? How is it that the Holy Spirit comes alongside and helps us in regard to the context we're talking about in Romans 8 where the Spirit of life sets us free? I think it's exactly this. The Spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. He comes alongside us and He moves on us. He, he blows on us like the wind. He causes us to be born again spiritually so that when the Spirit testifies to Christ as the truth... We believe Him. We believe Him. That's the link to faith, that we are trusting this 
testimony that the Spirit of God Himself is speaking to our hearts concerning the Son, the Lord Jesus, that He is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can convince you of that except the Spirit of life. He has to bring that to your understanding. So the Spirit of life who is in Christ, joined to Christ, He joins Himself to His people in their conversion. And He stays with them for their whole life and brings them to to glory. But as He joins us to Himself, because He Himself is joined to Christ, guess what? We now, by virtue of Him, are in Christ. That's the connection. That's why we are blessed, not condemned. We are in Christ because of this great work of the Spirit for us. I think that's really the key to understanding verse 3 and this whole question of how it can be that there is no condemnation for us anymore. So we move from the cause of our comfort being no condom, being the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, freeing us from this ruling power of sin and death, and we move to the limitation of the law. Look with me at verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Now, Paul is here going to tell us why it was that the Spirit alone could free us, why we couldn't free ourselves, why no person can save themselves. Here's the answer. For what the law could not do. Now, he's not talking about the law of the spirit of life or the law of sin and death here. He's talking about the law of God. He says, the law could not. It has no power to do what? Well, he says, for what it could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It was feeble. It was, the word means diseased or sickly. In fact, it's the word that was used of the gospel accounts, in the gospel accounts where the sick were brought to Jesus. The weak, that's what the law of God is described as here. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. And that's really the key The law is not weak in itself. The law is just, holy, and good. Again, there's nothing wrong with the law. But it's weak because it is being worked through us who are weak in the flesh. In other words, because of the weakness of our flesh, we can't keep the law, and therefore the law is weak. It's weak through us. And he uses the imperfect tense. In other words, it's always been weak through the flesh ever since the fall. If anyone attempts to keep the law in his flesh, in his own power, he can't do it. It's a fool's errand. There's no chance. Remember, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. The mind, the affection, the will of fallen man are all corrupted. That's what we call total depravity. Man is not as bad as he could possibly be, but he is as bad off as he could possibly be. He's in a position of condemnation. He has no appreciation for spiritual truth. It's not just that he doesn't do spiritual good. It's that he doesn't want to do any spiritual good either. He has no appetite for it. He loves evil. That's what his heart is set on. Rebellion to God. Serving self. Worshiping self. That's the weakness of the flesh. And because of that, Paul says the, power, the law has no power to save us. No power to save us. It's weakened through us. It can't justify anyone. This is what Paul meant in Romans 
3, verse 20, when he wrote, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law only shows us our sinfulness. It's not a means of salvation. It's to show us that we need to be saved. The the law is weak through the flesh. Listen a little bit to Hebrews chapter 10. This was our corporate reading this morning. And this, I think, is a really good illustration um, of the weakness of the flesh with regard to the law or how the law is weak through our flesh, probably better said. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law, first of all, we're told is a shadow. It's not the real substance It's something that points to a real image, a real substance. Because the sacrifices of the law can never make anyone who brings them perfect. It doesn't have that power. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? That's right. If the offerers could be perfected through this sacrificial ceremony where they bring an animal and that pays for their sins, there'd be no reason to bring animals over and over and over again. He says, For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. The guilt would be removed if the ceremony was effective. But the ceremony is not touching the heart of people. It only washes the outward body as a ceremony, as a symbol of a greater cleansing that has to take place. And so he says... In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because sinners are offering sin offerings. Even the priests are sinners themselves. So when they bring the sacrifice, they have their own sin to deal with. They're not sinless in order to be able to take care of the sins of other people. They have to take care of their own sins. And hence, the system perpetuates again and again. But of course, God intended it that way from the time it was instituted to show them a greater sacrifice must be made, one that can truly pay for sin and erase sin. And so, look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, this is a reference to Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. This is spoken by David. But he is prophetically speaking of Messiah to come who would be born through his seed. And David is saying what God is really interested in is not the ceremony. He doesn't care about the shed blood of animals as regards cleansing for sin. It does not do anything in and of itself. What is he interested in? Obedience. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. God is looking for a man who can obey him completely as he requires from the heart with a heart of love for God and love for neighbor. 
That's what he's been looking for from the beginning. And no one, not one of us has been able to do it. We've all been by default condemned from our birth because of Adam. We are born sinners and that's why we sin. Our nature is sin and so we make bad fruit. But there was one who was born sinless, who was conceived of the Holy Ghost, who had no original sin or inherited sin from Adam, who lived a life of perfection, who obeyed God perfectly in every respect. And it is he who speaks these words, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. The entire scroll is written of me, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have come to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first. What's that? The sacrificial system, the ceremony that points to the need for true righteousness and forgiveness that he may establish the second, true righteousness and true payment for sin. By that will we have been sanctified, meaning set apart, cleansed through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, for all time. God has His man, the one who is a sinless high priest, who can come to the throne and offer a sinless sacrifice on the behalf of others. He Himself has no sin. He is high priest. And He Himself is the sacrifice, the offering, which is sinless. He offers Himself for the sins of His people so that we can be free. That is the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we preach. The law is weak through the flesh. No one can build a stairway, a ladder to heaven because we have no interest in doing that and no ability to do that. We're condemned by nature. We need somebody who can do this for us, and that's exactly what the text says. Back to Romans chapter 8. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did. How? By sending His own Son. This is the third and final point. The love of God to the condemned. The love of God to the condemned. He says God sent not just His Son, but His own Son. There's a tender point here that he's making. This is a reminder of the preciousness and the costliness of this sacrifice which was God's own beloved Son, the Son of His love from all eternity. This reminds us of Abraham with Isaac, doesn't it? Genesis 22, when the Lord commands Abraham, he says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, Abraham had Ishmael as well. So Isaac was not his only son in that sense, but he was only in this sense, unique, begotten, loved, promised. He's the son of promise. Whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. And here we have this echoed now in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his, his unique son, the son of his love, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
that is the ultimate expression of the love of God to the condemned, to his enemies, to those who were on death row who had no concern for him. He shows this love of sending his own son, and he says he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness, not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness, a figure, a representation, but not the reality of sinful flesh. To the natural eye, Jesus Christ appeared just like every other Jewish man, except for one key distinction. He was sinless. He was born sinless, and he lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. The Lord Jesus was made like us enough to stand in our place as our substitute, to represent us to God as a sacrifice for our sins. He had to resemble us enough. He had to be fully human. But he had to be different enough from us, sinless, in order to substitute his life for ours. If he had even the slightest bit of sin himself, he couldn't pay for our sin because he'd have to pay for his own sin. You see, he is the only one that is uniquely qualified to lay down his life in the place of others. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And we know from Philippians chapter 2 that that is a description really of humiliation. And Jesus Christ did not come into existence when he was born in this world. He always existed as the eternal son of the Father. And he was given to us as a babe in the womb of Mary, conceived of the Holy Ghost. He took on flesh and became human, fully human, but he also was fully divine. And in leaving the courts of heaven and his glory and splendor there, he humiliated himself greatly. He condescended is the way it's put. And it would have been enough of a condescension by simply taking on flesh, by simply submitting himself to the rule of his own creation, to the limitations of his own creation, to hunger that we experience and thirst that we experience and tiredness and pain, all of those things. That would have been enough of a humiliation for the Lord of glory to experience, but he goes a step further. He humbled himself to be in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be one who was made in the form of a bondservant, a slave, and to take all of the filth, the scum that was our sin on his body, his precious body, and be punished for us. A great humiliation for this glorious Son of God. So he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Thank God he did. We wouldn't have a chance of redemption if he hadn't. And he says on account of sin or for sin. The Greek word is concerning sin. Um, On account of sin or for the purpose of dealing with sin might be a, a better way of explaining that. He came to be a suitable offering for sinful man. And if you think about it, the Lord Jesus had to weaken himself in order to be able to die for us. God does not die. Angels do not die. 
What is it that brought death into this world? Sin. Sin through Adam, and death spread to all men, for all sinned in him. At that point in time, as our federal head, as our representative, all of us fell in him. And so Christ had to be made, as the author to the Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 9, a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, who was then crowned with glory and honor because he, by the grace of God, tasted death for all men, for everyone. And that really in context is for all his people, for all his children who have been given to him. We would not have been able to die Excuse me, he would not have been able to die for us had he not come in the likeness of sinful flesh. But thank God he did. He was the sinless lamb of God who offered himself in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A wonderful exchange. Hmm. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's the next part. It's important. He condemned sin in the flesh. That word in the Greek has a double meaning. It means both to condemn to death, to pronounce sentence upon, and to actually carry out the sentence to the full, to punish that sin. So God pronounces the death sentence on his son. But he, unlike Abraham did with Isaac, God the Father didn't withhold his hand from taking his son's life. He allowed the knife to plunge fully into his son and to carry out his sentence of divine justice for sin to the fullest extent. He condemned sin in the flesh. In the flesh of his own son. That's what that means. A remarkable concept. God condemned the thing that condemned us. Our sin. He took it out of the way. And if you think about it, who could ever remove a a death sentence that God Almighty has placed upon all of mankind? Except for God himself. God himself must do it. And he did it. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's past tense. That points to a a one-time past action that happened at the cross where all the sins of God's people of all time were paid in full. That's the gospel. That's the good news, brothers and sisters. There is forgiveness full and free for our sins, for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his work alone. He condemns sin in the flesh, in the flesh of his Son, You know, in creation, when God spoke, the Spirit of God spoke, how did He create? He created by divine fiat. He spoke the Word and said, let there be, and there was. But in recreation, He can't do that. And I mean this. He does have a divine fiat in recreation. He declares His people justified, not guilty. That's justification. But He must do something additional in order to make that work so that he is both merciful Savior and righteous judge. See, God would not have been a just judge if he had just declared us to be free of sin without dealing with our sin. Sin is always dealt with in God's economy because he is a good judge. Either your sin will be paid for you in full on your own head, that's called hell, an eternity of conscious torment, by God that will never diminish even one bit, or the Lord Jesus has paid it all for you, and you recognize that by faith. Either way, sin is dealt with in full because God is a good judge. 
Isn't this just an amazing testimony of the wisdom of God that excels all the wisdom of mankind? That God could create a way both to be just himself and the justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ by punishing all our sin in his son who is righteous and who stood in our place. Praise the Lord. Hmm. So sin was condemned. Christ's work condemned sin once for all time. The condemnation is removed, which effectively removes the penalty for our sin, that is death. We've now been brought to life because our death has been satisfied in Jesus. And it means that the power of sin, our bondage to sin, has been removed. This is an important point, brothers and sisters, and we've talked about it before. We're going to get into it next time, Lord willing, as we look at verse 4, because verse 4 really explains this concept. Jesus did not only die so that our guilt could be cleared, that we could be pardoned at the bench, so to speak, of God's courtroom, and sent away on our own way to live our own lives. He doesn't do that. He's paid the penalty, but then he's also released us from the power, the bondage to sin that we were once in so that now we can live in newness of life for righteousness. Now we can begin to obey and resemble the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his Spirit in us enabling us to obey him. That is sanctification. That is freedom from the power of sin, which is true of every child of God. God's condemnation of our sin in Jesus' flesh is what frees us in both respects, from sin's penalty and from sin's power, and eventually looking to glorification from, his, from its presence. I want to leave uh, just one more question and thought with you to make sure that we can tie all this together in our minds in case it's not clear already. The big question that st- still might be lingering is this. If God's condemnation of our sin freed us from the penalty and power of sin, which it did, then why did Paul say in verse 2 of Romans 8 that it's the spirit of life who freed us from the rule of sin and death? It sounds like it's really God's work in Christ that is attributed with freeing us, and yet Paul says it's the spirit of life who frees us. How do we reconcile that? And again, the answer is because he is the spirit of life in Christ. In Christ. That's the key phrase. The Spirit who is in union with Christ unites us to Himself by blowing mysteriously on us as the wind of God, causing us to recognize that Jesus is our Lord and Savior so that we are now in union with Christ. And that means we become partaker of His redemption. That's the connection. So then when we go back and think about Romans 6, when Christ died, we died with Him. That makes sense because we've been unified with him by the Spirit. When he rose from the grave, we rose with him spiritually. That makes sense because we were united with him. So what the Spirit is doing here is he is taking the accomplished work of redemption that God did through Jesus in space and time 2,000 years ago, and he is applying that redemption to us, to our hearts, in space and time. That's the work of the Spirit of God in Romans chapter 8. That's why there is therefore not even the least bit of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, are we trusting in Christ this morning for our righteousness? 
alone? Are we trusting in anything else? Do you see that your only cause for comfort is not something that you've done, but what God clearly says is the work of the spirit of life in your heart, what he's done for you? Do you recognize that the law, though holy, just, and good, has this profound limitation? It can never save you because, not that it's weak in itself, but because it's weak through you. That you can't keep it because of the weakness of your own flesh. And do you stand in wonder at the love of God for a condemned sinner that he would send his son for you? Do you wonder and stand in amazement at the wisdom of God that he would make a way for you to be saved without compromising his divine justice? If so, take heart and rejoice. You are not condemned any longer. That is past. His favor is upon you and will always be upon you. Remember that the next time you sin and fail and see your sin and mourn and grieve over your sin and cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Remember that. You are not condemned. Turn your eyes back to Christ and find your forgiveness in Him and your joy restored. He will pick you up to keep walking in that path of righteousness that He sets you on. And perhaps you're somebody this morning who still loves your sin. You may even say that you believe all these things that we've talked about this morning, but if you love your sin in your heart, the Scripture says that you are still under condemnation. For you, I say, there's hope. Why would you die? Repent. Turn from yourself, from your notions of your goodness, from your own self-righteousness, from your way of doing things. Turn away from that and entrust yourself 100% on what God has done for you in Christ. Trust in Him alone and you will be saved. That is the good news. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for the glory of your word, for the power of your word, for the life of your word that we only recognize because of your gracious work toward us in sending your spirit, causing him to move on our hearts and to hear the testimony that Christ is Lord, that he is truth, and to love him, to want to serve him, We know that we can't do it perfectly, Lord. We feel this wretchedness that Paul describes in Romans 7. And Lord, we also cry out, who will deliver us from this body of death? But we thank you that you are delivering us. God, you are delivering us. In the power of your Spirit, you are giving us power to walk in newness of life. And Lord, you will deliver us one day completely. Absent sin, we will be in your presence, finally satisfied looking at you, beholding your face, the face of the risen Lord Jesus. We long for that day. But Lord, in the meantime, help us to be about your business. Help us to pour out our lives for you, to live for your glory and your kingdom and not our own. Help us, Lord, to love one another as you have loved us so that all would know that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.